0: Amen. Thanks, Josh. Thank the team, if you don't mind. It'd be great. Hey, so uh, I don't know if the beginning of the uh, service will make it online, but so I just want to reiterate what a cool thing has happened yesterday with the World Orphan Gifts. Uh, Close to $200,000, including the matches and what's been raised. And I had a feeling you kind of wanted to applaud for that earlier. You can now if you want. So, really good. So, I'm grateful if you were a part of that. Good things continue to happen, even though we're in the middle of uncertain times and pandemic and rising cases and all that kind of thing. Our food bank is considered an essential service, and so we get to keep doing it uh, throughout. So, we won't stop doing that. In fact, we started the food bank two weeks after the shutdown back in March. That's when we started it. And so, it's kind of neat, the food bank crew, uh, Scott and his helpers, they got connected to a local uh, mobile dental clinic. They had contacted the church and said, we'd like to help. And, of course, they get clients out of the deal, which is great. But they also do some free services and some free checkups and things like that. And so they came a couple of weeks ago and set up in our conference room. And, and it turned into a little dentist office in there. And so they did checkups and worked with some of the clients of the food bank. It was pretty neat. Uh, one gentleman that is uh, is here most weeks, he... Uh, he needs dentures. He doesn't have any. Uh, he's, he's mostly gums. And, uh, and so they, they checked him out. They were doing their thing, and they said, you know, I, we think we can take care of this. We can get you covered. And uh, I don't know if it's through Medicare Medicaid or, or just their benevolence, but it uh, won't be long, and the man will have, uh, have some teeth. Are you thankful for your teeth? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm thankful for my teeth, so... Really neat story. So if you would like to participate in their gift giving and all that sort of thing, they're going to have not just a food bank in a couple weeks, they'll um, allow uh, their patrons to come in and do some shopping for their families. And so we've had a couple piles of gifts that have come in through the week. And so you can do that. Gifts ages two to 14, uh, clothes, toys, just make a swing through Target and get some stuff and you can bring it over here during office hours, just come in the office door and and we'll put it with the other stuff. Um, No single gifts, more than $20. And so um, we would love for you to participate in that and bless some people for this Christmas. It'd be great for you and I to get our minds and attention on uh, some other people. So you're probably decorating for Christmas this week. Maybe you're putting a tree up. Uh, We've got an ornament suggestion for you. Maybe you've seen this, you can get it on Etsy. It's the 2020 ornament it's a dumpster fire if you can't tell what that is um, but there's a bunch of versions you can get on Etsy and they're pretty they're pretty cute so it will remind you what a wonderful experience this year has been um, and this is handmade in the USA by an artist who is tired of this trash year is what it says so that's just one you can find a whole bunch that are on there you know, it's interesting to have this year in contrast to what's happening this week in terms of Thanksgiving I mean, what a year and you're going to gather maybe around the table, some of you with some family members or maybe just a few of you or maybe just immediate family. And there's a chance that the discussion may turn to the normal type of question that's normally asked around Thanksgiving, which is, what are you thankful for? And I wonder if anybody's going to get punched when they ask this around the Thanksgiving table. It's a tough thing to ponder when you ponder what has been like this year. What are you thankful for? And it calls to mind for me one of the most challenging verses I think that Paul ever wrote. And it's in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and he says this. Say it with me. You Repeat it with me. You ready? Give thanks in... That's tough. It feels like it was written for this year, doesn't it? It feels like when Paul was writing this 2,000 years ago that he had two, uh, you know, this, this year, 2020, in mind, and he wrote this phrase, knowing that it would be difficult for us to give thanks this year. Now, I, I know, I know the list of things that you're thankful for is probably long, but I would also suspect that the list of things that you are either upset about or anxious about or worried about or angry about, whatever, is probably just as long. And when Paul writes this, when he says, give thanks in all circumstances, it's almost as if he's saying that your circumstances don't have anything to do with the gratitude that flows from your heart. How could that be? That's not how we understand gratitude. It's not how we perceive thankfulness. It is almost as if he's saying they're completely independent from each other. And Paul could write this because he'd been on a ship. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been in prison. He's been beaten. He's gone through all kinds of things in his life. Some by his own accord and some just the result of following Jesus. But Paul can say, your circumstances don't have anything to do with the gratitude that flows from your heart. And so what will Thanksgiving be like for you this year? We moved uh, our son into a new home a few weeks ago. He bought a home, our oldest, Austin. He bought a home over in Golden and we took uh, his stuff. He was driving a U haul and, and I was driving the truck and a different truck and uh, Donna was driving his car and they were all, all three vehicles loaded with stuff. And he was a few minutes ahead of us and he made his way over to the house and, and uh, we were almost there and uh, my phone rang and I thought, oh, what's up? He, it was Austin. I picked it up and he said, Dad, are you almost here? said, yeah, we're almost there. He said, well, I, I might need a little help with the U-Haul. And I didn't know what he meant, but I said, well, we're just around the corner. We came around the corner and this is what I saw. <laughs> and so his driveway is just right here behind him, behind the truck, I should say. And and he He, you know, he's never driven a U-Haul before in his life. In fact, when we were leaving the apartment, I said, do you want me to drive the truck? And he said, no, I got it. And you know, how else do you learn, right? Except by driving the truck. Well, you learn by doing this. That's how you learn. And so he was going to back up into his driveway and just pulled a little too far forward. You can't really tell, but that ditch is about two feet more deeper than you can see. And so those wheels, the front wheels are just hanging in in the breeze there. The truck has bottomed out on the asphalt and the back wheels, this rear wheel drive, can't get any traction. So we pulled up and he's laughing. He thinks it's funny. I do too. Maddie, who he's engaged to, thinks it's pretty funny too. And so Maddie gets behind the driver's wheel of the truck and and Austin and I come over here by the the front bumper and push because, you know, that's how we're built, right? And that didn't do anything at all. And so I'm calling U-Haul and I'm trying to figure out, can we get a tow truck there? And our, our two-hour project obviously is going to be an eight-hour project. And there goes my Saturday and so on and so forth. And his Saturday, too. And you know what a tow truck costs, right? It's going to be 300 bucks just to come and, and give it a yank. About that time, there's a house here that you barely see a little bit of. Out of this garage... Garage door opens and out pulls a, a, a very large, highly lifted Dodge Ram, full size. And I thought, I'm going to meet a neighbor. And he came down the road. He was going to have to pull all the way around it. He stopped just shy of the truck and looked over. He said, well, that's one way to do it. And so I met him and I said, hey, I don't know if you can help or not, but I wonder if you've got a, a toe strap or a, a toe chain or something. He's, and he said, ah, sure don't. And I thought, well, what do you have that truck for if you don't, my goodness. So I, I didn't say that, of course, because I'm trying to be his friend at this point because I need something from him. And so he just thought, he said, I don't, but I know who does. He said, I'll be right back. And he backed up into his driveway and drove not very far, just to the end of the court that just goes down that way. And, and we waited just for a bit. They're unloading the truck. I'm busy coordinating things. That's why I'm not unloading the truck. And finally, just a, a couple minutes later, a chopper comes up the, uh, the court. A, a big chopper. I mean, a big chopper is what I'm saying. And this gentleman is on the chopper. He gets close, gets close to us, kicks his kickstand down, turns off his motorcycle. He hops off his motorcycle. This guy has a goatee that comes down to about here. And it's got about, I don't know, 20 rubber bands holding it together all the way down, I mean, it's pretty. I was jealous, I'll be honest. I was jealous. He had dreadlocks, a leather hat, he was all leathered up, and I was just glad to see him around the, uh, the handles of his chopper was a toe strap. And, uh, and I said, It's so good to meet you. My name's Phil, what's your name? And he said, Well, everybody calls me Wacko. I thought, I'm sure they do. <laughs> And I, and I didn't know what to say to that. I said, well, what do you want me to call you? You might as well call me Wacko, he said. And I said, okay, Wacko, thanks for bringing the tow strap. And about five minutes later, uh, the truck was out of the ditch, and we were thankful. We were very thankful. Thankful to meet a couple neighbors. Thankful even though our circumstances called for Wondering, well, I wonder what's damaged, what are we going to have to pay for this truck, how's this gonna work? What's the tow gonna to cost? How long will we be here? What will this mean for the move day? Thankful that a couple people would be willing to help. And of course it calls to mind that verse that we would give thanks in all circumstances. Thankful before the help comes? Yeah. Thankful before you meet a neighbor. Thankful while the front wheels are in a ditch. Thankful while you're unsure of the future. Yeah. Thankful while you're not sure how you're going to get all your bills paid. You see, if gratitude flows when you have all that you need, it's not really gratitude, it's entitlement. And that's a very different thing. On Thursday, you may be tempted to white-knuckle it through Thanksgiving and give thanks in a way, you know how we do this, we give thanks in a way that we only think of the people that have less than we do. And we think, well, at least I don't live in a grass hut, at least we have hot water, at least we have food in the fridge. And your, your job at that moment is to think of somebody who is far less fortunate than you, and you use that, circumstance or that person or that family or that far off distant community that you've never even been to as poor and poverty stricken as it is to prop yourself up to get thankfulness to flow from your heart that's not gratitude at all you don't need to white knuckle it through thanksgiving and pretend that things are fine because guess what things are not fine i'm not fine everything's not fine And gratitude and things not being fine, well, they go together. Gratitude isn't pretending like you're grateful for a very tough year. You can lament as well. We've talked about lament before here at church. Lament says, I hope, I know, I believe that God is at work. Lament says, I believe in the love of a good God. ah, Complaint—you just need to stay away from that. Complaint says I deserve. Complaint says if I don't get it, then I'm going to be upset. Complaint is you are one blessing away from being a petulant, pitch—you know—throwing a a temper tantrum two-year-old. That's what—that's what complaint is. Complaint isn't gratitude at all. Lament says we don't have to pretend. Man, this has been hard. But we believe that God is with us and that we don't have to have circumstances that match what we want to give thanks. I give thanks in all circumstances. Complaint, Nah, that's not where you want to be. Lament, that's real. Show me a follower of Jesus that knows how to lament and give thanks, and I'll show you somebody who's building an authentic faith. Show me somebody who's not afraid to look at the darkness that's there, the pain and the struggle that's there, the disappointment that's present, and yet still have gratitude flowing from their heart. That's somebody who knows what it means to walk with a suffering Savior. That's somebody that I believe has a faith that's growing deeper, And more real. Show me somebody who's complaining and angry and anxious and doesn't know where it's coming from. That's somebody who's decided that God's love isn't real, that God's love isn't true, that God's love does not extend to this current moment that we live in. This prayer that we're going through in Ephesians for these two weeks that lead us into Thanksgiving and really prepare us for Advent and the Christmas season. This prayer centers around this idea, the difference between people who understand God's love and the people that don't. Here's where we were in Ephesians, and we'll pick it up from where we were last week. Here's what Paul says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. The prayer we started last week, this is the second part of that prayer. It's the very last section of Ephesians chapter three. And if you're wondering what your values ought to be through a pandemic, what your values ought to be through racial tension or political unrest, then Paul prays. And what he prays are the very things that you and I should latch on to, the things that we should allow to grow deeper. We should sow seeds so that what Paul prays for becomes important to us. What matters most? What is Paul praying for? You might remember this is what he prayed for, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And we said this is what the inner being is. The inner being is that part of you that makes decisions. It's that part of you that has a will, that has a desire. It's the part of you that comes out when you least expect it, when the furnace quits on Thanksgiving Day. It's the part of you that shows up when you're offended that somebody is taking something from you. That's your inner being. It's what spills out when you get knocked. And Paul says... It's not how you act. It's what's there to begin with. It's not your behavior. It's not even your choices. It's what's present in your inner being that I'm most praying for. So that when you get bumped, when you get jostled, when you get offended, what spills out is love, compassion, understanding. This is what he's praying for. And where does it come from? Well, he tells you it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not you. It's not me. It's not us white-knuckling it through Thanksgiving, just waiting to get through it. It's us trusting and surrendered to God, and he does it in us and through us. And he's going to pray that we would have power. Power for what? What do you think he's praying for? That you would quit sinning? That you would... Give more of your money away? What do you think, if Paul's going to pray for his people, God's people, not just then but today, what do you think he's praying for? What do you think he wants? I mean, he's a church planter. He's a pastor type. He's a preacher type. What do you think he wants from his people, that they would act more holy, that they would be more holy, that they would? What does he want? What he prays for is the only thing that can change your life, and this is what he prays for that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to do this one thing. Say the yellow words with me. You ready? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It's the one thing that he wants. It's the one thing that will change me and you. Let me say it this way. Whatever problems you have with other people relationally, whatever issues that you're facing when it comes to your own emotional state or your hope or your anxiety or your fear or your anger, whatever issues you have with your past, your present, or your future, Paul believes, and I believe with him, that they can be addressed, spoken to, not fixed. The side of heaven, but healed and nurtured by the love of Christ. Here's another way to say it, the opposite way. When you and I have issues with each other, it's because I don't understand how wide and how long and how deep the love of Jesus is. The struggle that I have, the friction that I have, the depression that I have, whatever it is, it's because... These things are spoken into and affected by the deep love of Jesus. Does it fix everything? No. But it begins there. It starts there. When Paul even describes it, you may have even pushed back and just not even caught his description. He gives us four words that describe the dimensions of God's love. It's weird that he would do this. Four words, how wide and how long and how high and how deep. If I'm at the store and I'm trying to find a piece of furniture and I need to know where it will fit because we have a table that belongs there, I need a table that's similar, and I called Donna and I said, you know, I forgot to measure this table. I forgot to measure our coffee table that's in the middle of our living room before I left. I need to know how big it is. She's going to give me how many numbers. How many do you think? she's going to give me three. She's going to measure how high it is. She's going to measure how long it is. And she's going to measure how wide it is. If she gives me four numbers, I'm going to say, I don't understand what you measured. Did you measure it diagonally? I don't need to know that. I don't even know how to figure out math, what that even means. She's going to give me three numbers. If you're going to measure something, you might talk about circumference, how big it is around, you you might have a number that's a diameter, but if you're going to measure something that has any sort of corners, a rectangular thing, a square thing, you're going to have three numbers. It's going to be how wide and how long and how high, that's it. But for some reason, Paul says that if you're going to measure God's love, it takes four numbers, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep. It's almost as if he's saying that if you, if you want to grasp God's love, these two numbers that would normally be one, how high and how deep, represent the size of God's love, how high is what you can see, right, what's above ground. This is the love of God that you can see and it's visible and you know what God's love is like that you can see. You experience it when you're on a mountaintop and you see the mountains in the distance. You experience it when you look up at the sky and you see fireworks and the light of the moon. You experience it when you imagine the cross and what those that were there that saw Jesus hanging on the cross, it's visible, it's above ground. You can see it. You can touch it and you can feel it. And his love is incomparable. But for some reason, there's a measurement of God's love that is deep that you cannot see. You cannot see it. It goes below ground, beneath the surface. And what that means, I believe, what Paul is trying to say is that there is a portion of God's love that is so rich and so deep that you can't even fathom how complete it is. It's that deep for you. I'm convinced that you and I wouldn't have trouble loving each other if we were convinced of this, how deep God's love is that you couldn't get under my skin if I knew this. If I fully comprehended the measure of God's love for me, how accepted I am, and how much he has welcomed me in, then there would be very little that would concern me about my life. I like the way Brennan Manning says it. Here's what he says. If Jesus appeared at your dining room table tonight with the knowledge of everything you are and everything you are not, total comprehension of your life story, and every skeleton hidden in your closet, if he laid out the real state of your present discipleship with the hidden agenda and the mixed motives and the dark desires buried in your psyche, you would feel his acceptance and forgiveness. Can you imagine that? There's a number of scriptures that talk about the reality that you and I will be called to account one day for all of our behavior, that that everything we have ever done will be brought into the light. Do you ever read a scripture like that and think, oh, do you get a little nervous? You start thinking, "I I don't know about this church thing. Maybe I don't want any part of it. Do you read portions of scripture and believe that they're are many facets of God like a diamond. That, that one side is love and another side is judgment and another side is his fury and another is his anger. That he is a consuming fire. You and I, maybe we grew up in a church that implied that God was, I don't know, maybe schizophrenic, that he had eight personalities and they showed up at different times. And this idea is that, well, when things are going well, we're getting the the love or the right hand of God and when things are not going well, when they have mixed motives and dark desires buried in our psyche that God then gives us the left hand or punishment or something like that. This misunderstanding of God contributes to us keeping our distance from him. And it contributes to us deciding that we'll have one portion of God, the portion that we like. It's true, scripture says that God is sometimes angry It's true that Scripture says he is a consuming fire. But his very nature from beginning to end the story of God, Genesis all the way to Revelation, is that his identity, the core of who he is, is love. This is why Paul says, I'm going to pray that you would have power, but the power isn't that you would knock off that sinning. The power isn't that you would become a different person altogether or more like your more holy friend, the way they live, I'm going to pray that you would have power to grasp, to understand, to comprehend how high and how wide, how long and how deep the love of God is. That's the only thing that will change your heart, the only thing that will transform you. And when you read a quote like Manning's here, I see, maybe you do too, the comprehension of your life story, the stuff that is seen and the stuff that is unseen. Your motives that are poor, your your dark desires buried in your psyche, all of this, Jesus sees all of it. Jesus isn't waiting for you to get cleaned up so that you can fix things and then he can welcome you in. This is how deep... His love is. This is how powerful it is. And Paul, when he says, this is what I'm praying, that you would grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. There are two kinds of people that have issue with what Paul is trying to put forward here. One is the the lot of us in the room or listening online that are dirty, rotten sinners and know it, have a hard time with it. Well, if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't love me. If you knew everything about me, there's no way God would welcome me in with his open arms. The other group that has a hard time with what Jesus is saying are legalists. Legalists sounds like an ugly name, I guess. But really, legalists are people that value appearances over what's deep inside a heart. Or they value how it appears over what somebody actually deeply has made, the image of God. Both groups don't really believe what Paul says here at all. And you can see it pretty obvious when Jesus walks the earth. Jesus goes in Luke chapter 7 to a man's house for dinner, a friend of his, his name's Simon. And Simon's important and he has some religious standing and he has other friends that are at this dinner. While Jesus is at the dinner, he's sitting and he's reclining the way a Jewish man would during dinner. A woman comes in to this man's probably outer porch, but maybe his home, we don't really know. And when she comes in... Everyone knows who she is. She has a reputation about town. And people know who she is and how she lives. And she's embarrassed to be there, but she wants to interact with Jesus. And so she comes up behind Jesus, and she gets close to him. And now behind him, she begins to kneel down, and she just begins to weep. Her tears cover Jesus' feet, and she anoints his feet beautifully, The aroma fills the room. And Simon thinks if Jesus really was the son of God, he would know what kind of woman this is. She was probably a prostitute in town. Her reputation was, well, she had all kinds of dark desires from that other quote that we talked about. And then Jesus tells Simon a story because he knows exactly what he's thinking He says, Simon, and he tells him a parable that really sort of puts Simon in his place. You can read it for yourself in Luke chapter 7. And so even while a guest in his home, Jesus, is there, this story lowers Simon's position. And then he looks at the woman and he says, your sins have been forgiven. And he takes the woman and he lifts her up. There's two kinds of people that have a difficulty believing that God's love is big enough even for you or for that jerk that you ran into the other day or for that person in your family who you can't believe they're invited to dinner. Two kinds of people. Those of us who know we're dirty, rotten sinners and those of us who hold people to a different standard that we can't even meet ourselves. And Paul says... I wish you had power to grasp how deep God's love is for you. That he sees you, that he knows you, that there's nothing hidden from you, from him at all, and that he welcomes you in. Does that mean he's okay with all the things that we've done? That's not even the question. The question is, is God's love large enough for somebody like you? And all the people that we sit in judgment of. And the answer is, immeasurably. He goes on to say this in this passage. And for those of us who have been in church a long time, and, and we know the word, and we're familiar with all kinds of things when it comes to Jesus and God, and history and Bible and doctrine, he says this, And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure Of all the fullness of God. In other words, if you would like to be filled with the fullness of God and love the way He loves, the only way for you and I to do that is to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ that extends to you, even to the depths of the worst part of you that maybe you don't even have awareness of. And if that's true, then you will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Here's another way of asking that. Who is it right now that you're having a hard time loving? If you can think of somebody pretty quick. If maybe a type of person comes to mind pretty quick, or maybe a whole group of people pretty quick, then there's a good chance that you might not know how wide and how long and how deep Jesus' love is because you can't give what you don't have. And if you have it, then you can't help but give it away. We're not through the mess that we're in and as a country and as a people, as a culture, not by a long sight. It's gonna get harder before it gets easier. Tension will get thicker before it's lighter. What God is looking for are men and women who are convinced of God's love for them that they may share it with those around them. What God doesn't need are more people walking around in judgment and condemnation of others. There's plenty of those. You've met them, right? We've been them, haven't we? What God is looking for are men and women who can give and love because they have received it too. So, as we embark on this Thanksgiving week, will you be somebody like that? Here's how Paul ends the prayer. And we'll invite the worship team up. And this will be sort of our thoughtful benediction as we prepare to echo what's true in the scripture. Amy will lead us in a song that will remind you that it's not me, it's not my wisdom, it's not my effort... It's not my ability, it's only Christ in me. And because of that, then we can say this together. In fact, let's read this together and I'll close this with a short prayer. Let's read it with a little bit of energy and, and with some conviction. Are you ready? This is the end of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than, we all, than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. And so Lord, we pray this right now together as a church family, right here in this place and throughout all of the homes, the places that are gathered in your name. And we pray this to you, you who is able to do immeasurably immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, more than we could dream or fathom. Lord, there's some listening right now that believe that they are beyond the scope of your love. That they are so far gone, sinful, apathetic, uninterested. Lord, we believe that your love doesn't just reach us when we're in places like that. It overwhelms us. It goes so far beyond us. It's not that you just are able to barely bring us in. Father, there is not one of us listening that has been someplace where your love wasn't there first. Or we can come to you with our hands open and confess the most uh, grievous, the most horrible, unthinkable things that we have thought or that we have done and know that your love envelops us even then. And so, Lord, we bring to you all of it. Our pride when we do something good. Our shame when we are hiding in the shadows. We believe we couldn't even begin to fathom the scope of your love. And So today we give thanks in all circumstances, knowing and believing that it is only Jesus in us that allows us to love and to know you And to experience your grace and your mercy. And so we honor you with these words. We pray that they would find fertile ground in our hearts.